1: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
2: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Under the moon,
1: life lies at your feet. Water displacement. Get in the pool!
2: The sound of Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones working out an ancient mystery as he faces certain death—truly, one of the great
0: gifts of the movies. This week, a review of the new Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, and our top five Indiana Jones moments. All that and more. Give me the whip. Throw me the idol. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting, and welcome back. Josh, I'm considering the possibility that one of your top five Indiana Jones moments will just be video of you and your daughter cruising down the Amazon, calmly (laughs) discussing the rivers, flora and fauna.
2: (laughs) You know, the, the region of Peru we were in actually is featured in kingdom of the crystal skull. But despite that, despite that, I am not going with the giant ant scene
0: on my top five list. Adam, I went a different direction. I am all out of Fitzcarraldo jokes, so we're just going to move on past (laughs) your trip. I'm very happy to hear that you had a great time. This week, we do have a review of the new Dial of Destiny spoilers. We both liked it. We've also got some Harrison Ford poll results. Are you Team Indy or Team Han? We have a decisive answer there, Josh. And we have a new poll that asks you to save only part of the Mission Impossible franchise. Speaking of impossible missions, we gave ourselves the task... Of selecting only five favorite moments from five films the five films that make up the indiana jones franchise this is one of those topics
2: that i think you could say is extremely difficult and torturous but you could also say it's one of the easiest lists we've ever done there are two Hmm. ways to go about this you can Run in circles trying to determine, I want the definitive list. I want to consider every moment that I've ever loved about this character, which Uh are endless for both of us, I think. Or you just say, you know what? The first five that come to mind, those are the ones for as many times as I've seen these movies those are the ones that have to be the top five because they're the ones that are lodged there. Why make it difficult? Why argue with myself? And so it kind of depends on how much time you have to spend on this, you know? And and I went a little bit more with the latter, having just returned from vacation with a, a limited time. I have revisited all the Indiana Jones movies within the last
0: month or so, so they're fresh for me. But yeah, I took more of an instinctual approach with this one, Adam. We'll get into my approach here in a moment. I definitely went through a lot of the same thought processes you did, thinking about trying to form a definitive list and the folly of that. Partly because I have two clear favorites and I like four of the five films in this series. So there are a lot of good options to choose from. But just take the two at the very top for me, Raiders and The Last Crusade. I could build my entire top five out of moments just from those two.
2: Yeah. And you could, I think both and of I us could separately. from Raiders, right? Yeah. I mean, be, to be honest, it's kind of in its own tier. And so, yeah, that would have been one way to go, too. And maybe the most truthful for me, at least, is just to stick with Raiders and pick mm-hmm. five from that. Well, let's go ahead and jump in. I want to hear your number five. It's not a Raiders. It is, well, let me first say, Adam, I'm here to reclaim the most derided moment in the series by giving it a spot. On my list. This is a scene that has been used as shorthand for years now to dismiss the entire movie that it's from. I was a fan of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull when it came out. And you know what? I was never really all that bothered by the moment in the opening sequence where Indy survives a nuclear blast by hiding in a refrigerator I mean, it says right there, Adam, before he gets in, we get an insert shot. Lead line. Mm -hmm. I mean, what more do you want? What what more logic could anyone ask for? Seriously, this is, of all the insanely illogical things that happen in these movies, I do love that this is where people just had to draw the line. This was it. I mean, yes, Indy can fly a life raft out of a plane into a river, but now, sir, you have gone too far (laughs) with this nuclear fridge sequence. And yeah, I'll admit it's, it is even more ridiculous than the Temple of Dune stunt, but Crystal Skull in comparison to the others, it has more of a Looney Tunes vibe to it overall. And I think that this nuclear escape is fitting for that. It's a little bit more cartoonish for an installment that strikes me as possibly the most cartoonish. I also think that, uh, you know, the saved by the fridge moment does still speak to Indy's character, believable or not. How much of his survival across these movies depends on dumb luck. I mean, yes, he's talented. He can think on his feet. He knows how to use the props, the circumstances around him, but quite a bit, it's just dumb luck. This is luck of the dumbest kind. I love it. So my number five, Indiana Jones moment is saved by
0: the fridge, (laughs) nuking the fridge Not only was I not bothered by it the one time I saw and reviewed Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I dug it. Nice. And I was relieved to see our friend and colleague Matt Zoller Seitz just a few days ago here on Twitter say this – I will die believing that, despite the rest of the movie being uneven, the Nuke the Fridge sequence is not only true to the spirit of Indiana Jones, but is part of the very finest sequence in the entire franchise. There you go. with an iconic image of Indy-defying Armageddon. So he may like the sequence even more than us to rate it that highly, maybe a little more down on the movie, but when Matt's on our side, we're in good company. Hey, there's three of us. We're set. We're good. (laughs) I liked it so much that I had determined really early, this was going to make my list. I had it at number five. Then I found out that you were also going to put it at number five. That gave me a chance to rethink things a little bit and try to solve not only a little bit of a redundancy problem, but I had another issue with my list. And that is the way I came at this was trying to think about the elements for me that are essential and elemental to what makes Indiana Jones and these movies so great. And all of my choices fit nicely into a certain category. I couldn't really figure out how to fit Nuke the Fridge into that scheme. It's the I dumb also, look. It's what Yeah, I said. maybe it's the dumb luck. You're right. <laughs> but I think there's something even more important that was lacking from my list, my original version, and that is romance. I don't think you can do this top five without acknowledging the contributions of Karen Allen, Absolutely. The chemistry between her and Ford, the characterization of Marion as brought to the screen, as presented by Spielberg and as written by Lucas and Kasdan and Kep and everyone else who has a writing credit on these movies. And in my desperation to find the perfect scene and to try to also find a way to get Crystal Skull on here, Tom Kuzmarskis in Chicago came to my rescue, like Indiana Jones. Josh, he wrote this. Although Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite Indiana Jones movie and is far and away the best of the five films, I wanted to highlight my favorite moment from the imperfect fourth picture, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It comes shortly after Indy is reunited with Marion. Marion, Indy, and Mutt are in a truck trying to escape their captors, and Marion accuses Indiana of having affairs with other women over the years.
1: I'm sure I wasn't the only one to go on with my life. There must have been plenty of women for you over the years.
0: There were a few,
1: but they all had the same problem. Yeah, what's that?
0: They weren't you, honey. Tom notes the score swelling with the sound of Marion's theme and that the camera then swings back to Marion, who has the biggest smile on her face. Meanwhile, Indy slips through the hole in the roof. It is such a great movie moment, funny and romantic. It combines well-timed cuts and camera movements with terrific acting and one of John Williams' most beautiful pieces of music. Crystal Skull has other great moments, Indy putting on his hat at the start of the film, the fantastic shadow-on-shadow work when Indy is being interrogated by the Russians in their tent, a swarm of giant ants consuming a Russian soldier. But as I said, the above is my favorite moment because it's about my hero, Indiana Jones, bearing his heart to his one true love, then heading out for more adventure. Rewatching this scene today, Josh, it's only about 25 seconds long. I can't oversell how much fun this little exchange is. The rhythm of it. Ford delivers that last line. They weren't you, honey. He punctuates it by tossing the switchblade that he was using on the roof. He tosses it back to Mutt. Mutt catches it, slides back over, By Marion, the camera just pans a little bit with him to the left. So now it's a two shot. And that two shot reveals Marion's radiant, smiling face. I think this scene plays great if you're just listening to the audio, just because of the line delivery and the Williams score. But of course, what really makes it a great scene is that last little bit it's Marion's reaction. Indy, he doesn't wait to see that reaction. He knows it's a good line, and he's busy. He's got things to get to. There's no clunky kind of shot, reverse shot reaction. It's just about that little element of surprise. Spielberg making it feel as if the camera is revealing something to us, that we're discovering something there rather than it being thrust upon us. And no matter how angry she ever gets with him, they have an undeniable connection, including an undeniable physical one, and she can't resist him especially when he charms her like that she's smiling like a junior high girl finding out that the cutest boy in school likes her they're jaded and cynical they've got all this baggage but they also express their feelings for each other and i think we might get to this a little bit more as we get through our list they express their feelings for each other in ways that are really playful and actually childlike and innocent
2: so great to have karen Karen. allen back For Crystal Skull, it is absolutely one of the reasons why I was a big fan of that movie. And you're right about romance. That is a crucial element to his character, so much so that I have a moment like that, possibly involving Karen Allen a little higher on my list. But for my number four, I'm going to go with the most recent film. I'm going to go with Dial of Destiny. And it's a sequence that is... It involves Indiana Jones, but it also involves Helena, this new character played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Indiana Jones's goddaughter. Now, it's not a huge spoiler, but there is something of a reveal here in my pick, which is Helena's illegal artifacts auction. So if you haven't seen Dial of Destiny yet, maybe maybe hit that 30-second button once or twice. I'll give you a moment here to do that and probably just tease what we already have, that I really like Dial of Destiny. Good enough that there were a couple of moments, as a matter of fact, I did consider for this list. But I did land on Helena's Illegal Artifacts Auction. So this comes about midway through Dial. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character, she's presented as a PhD student in archaeology. That's what she tells Indy. But we can tell there's something mysterious about her. And at this point, we realize... Okay, She's not just a student. She's more, in fact, in it for profit and glory to recall the young Indy who we meet in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. She's kind of at that stage of her adventuring. Now, in this scene, she's in a Tangier hotel running this auction. It includes the item of the title that Indiana Jones is after as well. And they're both in this room with a bunch of unsavory types. Indy busts in to try and retrieve that dial. Then the movie's main bad guy played by Mads Mikkelsen. He's a Nazi scientist. He also arrives with his goons to claim it. And you get this very funny, exciting, almost James Bondian scene that showcases a couple of things. Waller Bridges, quick wit, a great bit involving Indy's whip, and every movie needs something like that. I won't spoil it. Uh, And then maybe the movie's best line, which is another jab he makes about the miscalculations of the Third Reich. Have
1: we met? No? My memory's a little fuzzy, but your face rings a bell. Are you still a Nazi? (laughs) You're confused. My name is Schmidt. Professor Schmidt of Alabama University. Professor Schmidt. 170. You should have stayed in New York. 170.
2: You should have stayed out of Poland. 170. Anyone? Anyone? So as this speaks to Indy's character, you know, you have that dig the way this is, you know, Nazis are not just a thorn in his side. This is like a lifelong almost obsession he has with one upping them. And here's one more chance to do that again. But also his boldness to just come crashing into this room, not knowing exactly what he's going into, but this is going to come up a number of times, at least on my list, making it up as he goes along, Mm -hmm. right? Figuring it out in the moment, getting the lay of the land as he goes. And I think this is just one of the many examples we have throughout the series of him doing that. So yeah, I like Dial of Destiny enough. I wanted it represented on this list and this is the direction I went.
0: I had one or two scenes in mind, but I couldn't go as far as you and make room on my list for a scene from Dial of Destiny. That said- I agree that the you should have stayed out of Poland line is one of the funnier bits (laughs) in the entire movie. And we also get one of the more effective, I thought, callbacks to Indiana Jones in that scene, which is when he breaks out that whip Mm -hmm. and then the guns all get turned on him, which, of course, is reminiscent of the sword fight scene when he pulls out the gun in Raiders. Yep. Okay, my number four and. Another essential element for me when it comes to appreciating Indiana Jones, invoking a sense of awe. And I don't mean awe at the filmmaking and the craft, though there's that too, and we'll discuss some of that, I'm sure. No, I mean more like what we hear Indiana Jones say in the trailer for Dial of Destiny. It's featured very prominently when he says, I don't believe in magic. But a few times in my life, I've seen things, things I can't explain. And I've come to believe it's not so much about what you believe. It's how hard you believe it. So these supernatural elements and this conflict over what you feel or what you want to believe is true versus what you can actually see and verify. He says it at one point in Dial of Destiny. He's talking to. Baz, the Toby Jones character, who's a professor, or at this point when he says it may be a former professor at Oxford, and he believes something to be true, and he says, without the evidence, it's not science. And as we get to my pick, Supernatural, if there's going to be some really strict didactic folks out there when it comes to the semantics, I'll point out that Supernatural might not be the right word to describe my choice, and that choice is the map room at dawn from Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is where he's got the the staff of Ra, which he knows he needs to use to determine the exact location of the Ark. And Indy and Sala find that the Nazis, they're digging in the wrong spot. They go and find the right spot. And then he uses that medallion on the staff to actually discover the Well of Souls. That's where the Ark is. Back to the semantics Supernatural might be the wrong word because there's actually something very natural and scientific about the whole thing. Everything that we see Indy do, the code, if you will, that we see him unlock, it's all based on an understanding of astronomy and math so that when you place the staff in a certain place at a certain time of day, that that location is revealed. But it's still awesome. And I I don't mean awesome like the way we all overuse it, like the burrito I had for lunch today. I mean mean something that you – you feel humbled in the face of, and it has to be revealed to you that there's a process to it. There's a harnessing and merging of human knowledge and intellect and the celestial, which I feel like is the whole series in a nutshell. I also love this map room scene because there's no dialogue. It's a little over four minutes long. And even before Indy goes down into the hole, They're doing a little pantomime for anyone who might be watching, acting like, oh, what's this? We're not up to anything. Don't mind us. Nothing to see here. It's completely silent, the whole sequence, save for John Williams' score. And then the sound effect we get, if I recall correctly, when the the beam of light comes in. And that score, this is, I mean, the score is great always in Raiders and throughout these films, but especially here. So good here. Oh, it, it just captures that sense of mystery and that sense of awe. You've got those great close-ups of Ford working with his hands, moving the sand away, leading up to what I think would have to make a top five list of single shots. If you just want the single images from the Indiana Jones franchise, Indy standing gloriously still with that staff almost bursting with anticipation, and the music crescendoing perfectly, and the sun rising, and then illumination. That beam of light emanating from the staff that does reveal, that does illuminate the ark's actual location and that close up we then get following that of Indy's face and the glow from the light is is magic and the whole thing is movie magic for me this might be spielberg's best moment in the indiana jones
2: franchise and i say that having a pick that's coming up from raiders That I had on my top five Spielberg scenes a number of years ago. So maybe I missed it back then. I have something more action oriented. And maybe we think of that with Spielberg and these films is the action genius that he is. We'll probably touch on that when we talk about Dial of Destiny because it has a new director and James Mangold. But man, I can't imagine Mangold doing this you know i, I think no. a, a little a little teaser it's not spielbergian but i find the action to be clean and competent and exciting in dial of destiny it's in the same ballpark but would anyone but the guy who managed light so well in close encounters of the third kind and patience as well in that mm-hmm. movie and et and in all his great movies as you mentioned this scene goes on it's it's not a quick moment but it doesn't use any dialogue it just uses Small bits of motion and light and the music, as you mentioned, to create everything you described so masterfully. It makes me think it is Spielberg at his best. I just can't think of another filmmaker who would make this work as well as it does. All right, my number three, here's my romance pick, and it's the only one I could go with if I was just choosing one. Where doesn't it hurt? From Raiders of the Lost Dark?
1: Ah, oh, wait, I don't need.. Any help. I'm good, I'm too... Not the man I knew ten years ago. It's not the years; it's the mileage.
2: You said it well at the beginning, Adam. Uh, I include her. I was, I was lucky to not only have Harrison Ford in my two favorite childhood series, Star Wars and Indiana Jones, but to have actresses up to sparring and sparking with him wonderfully in both. Carrie Fisher in Star Wars, of course, and then Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood. Uh, and so I wanted to honor Marion, really, with this scene. There are many to pick from in Raiders of the Lost Ark, in particular with her, but this one obviously involves uh, Indy as well. So it is, where doesn't it hurt?
1: Please, I don't need a nurse. I just want He's to sleep. such a baby. Marion, leave this year? Go, right? yes hurts. Wow. Well, God damn it anywhere doesn't it hurt? Here. Here.
2: This is too bad. What I like about this moment is that Marion is not in awe of Indy. She's teasing him here, right? It's mm-hmm. that give and take that you were talking about. And the playfulness. The playfulness. How about when she looks at them both in, in that mirror? She's regarding his bloodied, battered body, and she says, You're not the man I knew 10 years ago. You know, there's there's something both admiring but teasing about it. And and of course, he gets the great response: the it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. I do love that this starts in acrimony. Her her yelling at him. The line is delivered. She yells, where doesn't it hurt? She's angry there. And then we slowly slide into tenderness. Watching this again, it actually reminded me of that moment in the Lady Eve, which we discussed in our Barbara Stanwyck marathon, where Stanwyck uses a combination of coercion and seduction to, to turn Henry Fonda into putty in her arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is there's obviously more relationship at work here in this sequence, but something about the dynamic brought that to mind. Anyway, I also like how this scene ends with that nice little comic touch where he falls asleep, right? How much better is that? Then the generic, cliched, discreet pan away to the window as they continue kissing, right? That's that's what we would normally get. But no, instead, uh, a little comic touch that's also, it's rooted in character, right? She says out loud, we never get a break, do we? And it captures this relationship as something of an unrequited romance for both of them for reasons that are beyond their control. So, so many elements going on here. And of course... We're going to mention Williams again, all backed by that lovely, quieter motif from his score, which is titled, of course, Marion's Theme. So, yeah, romance pick for me as well there from Raiders of the Lost Ark.
0: You connected, rightfully, Marion and Leia, Raiders and Star Wars I had an epiphany of sorts watching Dial of Destiny. One of the things I jotted down in my notes that I had somehow never noticed before is how similar Marion's theme is to Han and Leia's theme. Mm -hmm. The melody is so close. And I thought, am I crazy? I came out of the movie and I Googled it. And sure enough, a lot has been written. About the similarities. Reddit threads devoted to it. Videos on YouTube. I'm not nuts. There's definitely some common material there that Williams is working with. And who knows? Maybe it was something about Harrison Ford that inspired him to connect those themes the way he did. You mentioned a comic touch. Let's get into it. Another element that you have to have when talking about what's so great about Indiana Jones. The visual gags. Comedy That's born not just from great jokes, great written and delivered jokes, but from an innate understanding of how to use the camera and how to use editing. To elicit laughs. A listener wrote in with a really good one. Michael Roche in New York, New York. He said, It's impossible to single out only one great moment. I'm sure lots of people will go with the shooting the swordsman moment. That's definitely one. So I'll go with a lesser talked about joke from Raiders. The brilliant visual gag when a captured Marion sees Tote enter her tent wielding what appears to be metal nunchucks with three parts. Tote aggressively tugs on them as another Nazi takes his coat. Marion's face perfectly sells the panic of someone who thinks they're about to be beaten within an inch of their life. Instead, Tote folds the object into a coat hanger and hangs his coat on it. Just an ingenious gag. Another that I love from Last Crusade is the no ticket bit. When he throws the Nazi out of the the Zeppelin, he Mm -hmm. is posing as a ticket taker. And it's more of a punchline, more of a written line, but still... That choice Spielberg makes, if you rewatch that scene, to shoot it mostly in a medium-long shot where we get to watch Harrison Ford throw him out the window, then stand, react to the crowd of people looking at him aghast, and then deliver that line and then follow that up with all the passengers frantically waving their tickets. Again, it's, it's a combination of all those elements, the writing, the acting, and the camera and editing that make it work. My scene is from... Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's when they're in Austria, they're at the castle. Elsa has now revealed herself to be working with the Nazis. She and Donovan discover that important pages have been ripped, I think from Henry's book, Henry Sr., Sean Connery, that the contain a map. And Elsa correctly surmises that Indy surely gave the pages to Marcus Brody.
1: Marcus You didn't drag poor Marcus along, did you? He's not up to the challenge. He sticks out like a sore thumb. We'll find him. The hell you will.
0: Here again, the, the rhythm of it all, the editing, the camera choices, and the conviction of Ford's performance all setting up a big laugh. We hear as the kind of prelude to it, we hear Donovan say that he'll stick out like a sore thumb and we'll find him. That's all in this this kind of wide shot that shows all the players in the space. And it stays on that shot as Indy gets going. He's
1: got a two-day head start on you, which is more than he needs.
0: Spielberg then cuts to the other side so that we can see Indy's face in full. He's staring down Donovan and he fiercely explains the alleged sophistication and elusiveness of Marcus Brody. Brody's got friends in every town
1: and village from here to the Sudan. He speaks a dozen languages, knows every local custom. He'll blend in, disappear. You'll never see him again. With any luck, he's got the grail already.
0: The camera tracks forward on Ford as he's speaking, which of course makes it All the more commanding and emphatic, stopping precisely as he delivers the last line. And we even get a little bit of a low angle close up for full effect, really just maximizing that sense of command. It's a great performance. And of course, I mean Ford, but I really mean here Indy's performance that's what it is. Selling Brody's virtues It's actually kind of fun to go back and watch it, knowing that it's a performance, having seen the movie, of course, multiple times. And just watch Connery's face reacting as Henry Jones to this nonsense that his son is spewing and kind of trying to keep it together and not contradict him. But he's delivering this performance. And I think it's even possible, Josh, that maybe by the end of it, he's convinced his father. That Brody is more slippery than he originally gave him credit for. Or maybe Brody has honed his skills since the last time they saw each other. And the perfect beat at the end, it holds just the right amount of time after that last line. To poor Los Marcus.
2: Uh, does anyone here speak English or even ancient Greek? I water it.
0: Thank you, sir. Does anyone here speak English or even ancient Greek? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like you think he's going to find try. someone that, that speaks ancient Greek. It's a great laugh line, but it's all set up by the writing, the performance, and of course, the camera work and that, that cut. Well, it gets at another aspect of the
2: Indiana Jones persona, too, which is bluffing. How much of of Absolutely. his time is spent <laughs> bluffing. It's yep. it's the dumb look, it, but it's also the bluffing and, and a number of other things we're, we're going to get to yet. At my number two, let's stick with Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. I'm picking the motorcycle escape. This is a solid action scene, but for me, it mostly works because of the nonverbal interplay between Harrison Ford and Sean Connery during all the chaos that's going on here. So Professor Henry Jones is riding in the sidecar. Indy's driving the motorcycle and his dad is mostly annoyed at the Nazis on their tail. He's so grumpy. He out grumps Harrison Ford, which is, is really something here. <laughs> Indiana, meanwhile, is, I would say, devoting 60% of his energy to keeping them alive and 40% trying to impress and prove himself to his father. Yeah. So when he grabs a flagpole that he passes, Sticks it into an approaching motorcycle's wheel, causing it to flip spectacularly in the air. Great action move, right? He gives one of those signature indie self satisfied grins when he pulls something like that off, turns to look at his father, <laughs> surely expecting the same face, the same grin looking back at him. Uh-huh. No. No, Connery just looks at his son with this bemused, bemused sort of a slight scowl. Like he yes. can't even he can't even rouse himself to a full scowl at what just happened. As a matter of fact, now he's going to instead take out his pocket watch and start winding it as if this is all child's play. These are not the actions of a serious man. So there is action here, there is comedy here, but it's also maybe the best example of this relationship that these two iconic actors at this point bring to life on screen. It's one that is, it's layered with real feelings of resentment and disappointment that can be particular to fathers and sons, especially if
0: they share the same profession and the son is trying to follow in his father's footsteps. What a perfect segue into my number two. We're going to make it three picks in a row for the third film in the series, the last crusade and the tank battle itself is easily a potential top five Indiana Jones sequence, right? But for me, it's all about the payoff and how amidst all the action and the humor we've talked about, these films manage to deliver some genuine emotion. And I think Last Crusade and Dial of Destiny probably lead the way in that category. But this, for me, falls under the heading of, for lack of a better phrase, real emotion. But also, I think it's crucial, you said it, talking about Spielberg when we approach this list and what is more fitting for a discussion of Spielberg than talking about fathers and sons and that complicated relationship. So it's the culmination of the tank battle scene for me. That's my number two Indiana Jones moment. Indy's fighting the Nazi on top of this tank. It's heading for the cliff. And we know that I have to rewatch it, Josh. I can't remember if, if Spielberg actually shows us the cliff first or we see Harrison Ford's face first reacting to it. But we get a close-up showing something we don't see a ton of from Indy, which is genuine terror. There is this moment, and the camera really quickly tracks forward on his face reflecting that terror. A look that suggests maybe there's no escaping this this time. Could this actually be the end for Indiana Jones? We know we're only halfway through the movie, but as viewers, we're thinking it. He's thinking it. And I noticed today, rewatching it, Josh, what does Spielberg do at the exact moment where he seems to be saying, I'm a goner? His hat blows off. His hat blows off right in line with a little, and I know it may... Seem like an oxymoron, but it is a little one, a little symbol crash that John Williams gives us in the, the rousing music that's playing right on that crash. The hat blows off, and it's as if he's saying that's his whole identity. That hat is his identity, and once that's gone, maybe he's gone, too. He ends up falling down by the tracks of the tank in the front, and it goes off the cliff. Henry, Sala, and Marcus Brody all rush to the edge, and stare down, sure that Indy's gone.
1: Oh, God. I've lost him. And I never told him anything. I just wasn't ready, Marcus. Five minutes would have been
0: enough. I don't care how many times I see it or the fact that I know that In a second, Indiana Jones is going to come crawling back up over the ledge, but Connery's delivery of those lines, I've lost him and I haven't told him anything. I just wasn't ready. Whew. That is, that is a very real lament that all too many fathers and sons experience and express at some point, ironically, that's the point they express it when it's when it's too late. And yes, of course, that happens with lots of other types of relationships and different dynamics as well. But fathers and sons aren't usually the best about expressing anything. (laughs) And we get that great delivery from Connery, that emotional delivery. Indy then does manage to survive. We see him, the audience sees him before (laughs) The men do. We see that he's still alive. He comes back over the ledge. And this is another great visual gag. Amidst all this, the humor of it, three men staring over the cliff, Indy completely banged up, completely dazed, standing between the men, wondering what they're looking at, wondering why they're solemnly staring down at the wreckage. And what really clinches it, what totally sells it, Josh, what sells the gag, is then Ford leaning forward. (laughs) It really is another moment of pure silent comedy-type performance. And yet, it's also real pathos, as I said, at the same time. I thought I'd lost you, boy. I thought you had to, sir. The embrace from Connery as he finally looks and sees that Indy's still alive, that he's right there standing next to him. And when he says, I thought I lost you, boy, and Indy replies, I thought you had two, sir, Ford gives us this face (laughs) that reminds me a little bit of what I was saying about Indy and Marion. Indy and his father have also been estranged. They have this contentious relationship. They bicker. You've got this son who is always trying to impress his dad and who's always trying to assert his individuality. And in that moment, when his dad finally embraces him and says The closest thing he'll probably ever say to him, the closest thing to I love you that Indy's probably ever heard, what does he do? He nestles down onto his dad's shoulder and he smiles like a little boy. It's perfect.
2: Yeah, it's a a sweet moment. And then remind me, is this also where once they kind of separate and Indy falls down? Doesn't Connery kind of revert back to their relationship? Like he tells him, oh, come on, let's go. What are, you, what are you sitting around for? Yeah. So, which just makes it even more bittersweet because you could just see those old patterns are probably going to fall back mm-hmm. into place. But for this moment, this moment, they shared something special. All right, so I've touched on every movie so far in the franchise for my list except Temple of Doom. Did I save it for my number one? No. No, no, I did not. Sorry, (laughs) Temple Temple of Doom fans. Maybe I'll give it a nod in, in honorable mentions, but I'm going back to what was the number five choice on my top five Spielberg scenes list in 2011, and it is Taking Over the Truck from Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is the ultimate I'm making this up as I go moment, which to me is the defining quality of all the series, best action sequences. We never know what's going to come next because our hero doesn't know what's going to come next. This is not Indiana Jones is not the guy who gets the blueprint of the facility six months in advance and assembles a team of crack thieves to put together a plan. He's the guy who wakes up that morning and busts in. That's how he works. That's what's so thrilling about him. And that's what's so thrilling about this moment. This was also the pick for Aaron Neuwirth from Laguna Hills, California, who left us not just a voicemail, but per your request, Adam, (laughs) a voicemail that also includes him humming the Indiana Jones theme music.
1: Hey film spotting. this is Aaron Newworth out in Laguna Hills, California and when asked the favorite moment of the Indiana Jones series, there's certainly plenty of options to choose from but I always have to go back to Raiders of the Lost Ark and even then there's still a mountain of different options to choose from, but it is specifically the truck chase and even more specifically, it's when Indiana Jones is basically thrown out of the window of the truck in the front and proceeds to have to climb his way back into the driver's seat and that entails going underneath the truck, being dragged, using the whip just in time to hold on for dear life. All of this is captured so well, including Harrison Ford's, his basic tiredness and desperation to just maintain control of this truck. It's shot incredibly well thanks to, you know, the tricks of the trade, the use of Douglas Slocum's wonderful cinematography to really capture the rough and tumbleness of it all, and just Spielberg's playfulness in making the action Represent that pulpiness that he and Lucas were after, while also making something exciting and great for the time that it came out, and to hold on as well as it has, and the you know as the classic it's become. So, yeah, the truck chasing Raiders and Indy just doing his best to hold on and get back in the truck and take the ark away from those damn Nazis.
2: Aaron describes it so well. There, this is why Indiana Jones is an action masterpiece. This this series is an example of that. It's not only that it's expertly, inventively choreographed and executed action, mostly by Spielberg, a master of the craft, but it's always action as character. It's Indiana Jones, who is usually very tired, always very desperate, yet indefatigable at the same time. He's improvisational, he's vulnerable, he's funny. How about the moment here when he and the Nazi share a chuckle about the villager who falls onto the truck? And mostly Indiana Jones, he's just surviving by making it up as he goes along. So I I do think we'd have to sit down and do this as an official list, but in the midst of this right now, I feel like Indiana Jones might be cinema's best action hero. And for me, this is maybe his
0: defining scene, taking over the truck in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think you're probably right, and yet I'm going to see that scene, and I'm going to give you another one from Raiders of the Lost Ark at number one. Again, perfect transition into my pick, Josh, and that fifth element for me, even though we've talked about it really with all of our choices, just the embodiment of thrilling filmmaking slash storytelling. As you said, action is character, perfectly executed cinema. That's what we get at the very beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark, The HoviDos Escape. That is my number 1. Others refer to it as Temple Run, and of course it does remind you very much of the the game that later came out called Temple Run, but it is its own wonderful mini drama with action and suspense and good guys and bad guys and twists and turns, and it is our introduction to Indiana Jones. We really get a sense of everything about his character. Just by watching him in this scene, we get the iconic, give me the whip, throw me the idol, no time to argue. And of course, the giant boulder sequence, that's all there and wonderful and a reason why this is my number one. But when I sat down and just went on instinct like you, Josh, and I thought about, okay, someone says Indiana Jones. What do you think about? What images pop immediately to mind? And I kept coming back to this sequence but a particular part of it and a particular image and a choice by Spielberg. So this is after Belok has taken the idol. Indy has escaped the Hovidos. They're chasing after him. We get all those dashes through the jungle. We cut to a plane on the water and a guy fishing. We don't know who he is or his connection to Indy. I don't believe that's set up at all in this sequence, but we don't need to. It's understood that Indy is running towards this guy that this guy is on his side and that's his way out. Another little fun touch to amp up the energy and the suspense of it all. Jock happens to be catching a fish when Mm -hmm. we see him. We see him sitting there, but then he catches a fish. So he's kind of preoccupied when Indy arrives on the scene and he kind of hesitates. Yeah, he's torn. when, when, When Indy actually yells at him, what is he supposed to do? Drop his fish? But we cut back from Jock. To Indy, and this is the image. You can probably see it in your head plain as day. For a second, we just see the jungle. It's empty. And then Indy emerges over the hill. Incredible wide shot. Oh, and a few beats later, emerging behind him, first a few, and then a lot of angry Hovitos. Indy is now running as fast as he can. Dust and cobwebs are, are blowing off of him. There's so many obvious ways you could have staged that chase scene, cross-cutting between the chasey and the chasers, which we get a little bit of leading up to that shot of the plane. You also could have just used that wide shot that we eventually get of Indy running with everyone behind him. But Spielberg just knows how to draw out the tension to give you really arresting and interesting compositions. And again, I think there's a sense of revealing information to the audience, revealing something through the cam work that engages you as an audience member. So, you know, even just on a subconscious level, you're not watching just another chase scene, seeing Indy, then seeing the proximity of the Hovitos to him, then seeing the size of the group trying to kill him. It builds and builds and builds. And for me, that image, as he's saying, Jock, start the engine as he emerges on the horizon, that, that was indelible.
1: Get it up!
2: one of those sequences i you know is in my mind beat for beat every cut just the number of times i saw it and when i first saw it and incidentally also adam that's supposed to be taking place in peru that's exactly how b and i left our trip <laughs> we had we had screwed up some of our animal counting science uh-huh. reports so the scientists got really mad they chased us
0: we had to jump on a plane and take off we barely made it Thrilling, daring. I expect nothing less from a Larson vacation. Those are our top five Indiana Jones moments. We would love to hear your picks. Email us feedback at filmspotting.net. I'm going to confess that I put so much energy into coming up with these five that I don't have much in the way of honorable mentions. I have a couple I want to throw out. Do you have any others that you want to make sure get a little love before we move on, Josh? I mean, Temple of Doom does deserve some recognition. Mm-hmm. I think
2: it is, as I've said recently on the show, mostly a miscalculation on Spielberg's part. But that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of craftsmanship in it. There are some great Indiana Jones character touches. And you get both for me in the moment where he cuts the rope drawbridge. You know, mm-hmm. another making it up as yeah. he goes along. It's it's a bluff, but not a bluff. It's desperate. And it's absolutely thrilling. When I saw it as a kid the first time, I could not believe he was going to do that, but also could believe it and loved how it all played out. So that's the nod I want to give to Temple of Doom.
0: Yeah. The bridge sequence for me is one from Temple of Doom I actually did consider. I also considered, and this one I'd put just slightly ahead of it, I think that mine sequence. And that might be partly because there was a video game when I was a kid. I think just an arcade game. I remember going to a certain department store and my mom would be shopping and I would be out in that outside area with the video games playing Raiders of the Lost Ark, trying to navigate the mineshafts, just like in Temple of Doom. So that might be my choice if I was going to go with one from that film. I do have to say, I've already made two choices from The Last Crusade, but to not have the three challenges, or the only the penitent yeah, man shall pass. Yeah, I thought for sure you'd have that. Yeah, it seems like an oversight, but not an oversight. I'm putting it in the penalty box. It was my number two Spielberg scene. I've already talked about my love for that scene and why I love okay. it. I decided I decided to set it aside here. It's just getting an honorable mention slash seat in the penalty box. I couldn't make the case for it, but one more I'll throw out from Raiders. Just when you mentioned this series, you mentioned Raiders in particular. You know what, I actually always think about and love? I love the ending. I love that final little tag of after all of this, and after how powerful we see that the ark is, and all these people have died <laughs> trying to find it. It's just boarded up, you know, it's put in that wood crate and just thrown in a big room with a bunch of other relics. Something nice about that always stuck with me. Again, our top five Indiana Jones moments. And we will list all of these and link to the video clips. If you want to watch along and have fun, just as we did putting these lists together, that's a filmspotting.net slash lists. You think I'm a hero? I am not a hero. I'm a drifter with nothing to lose. You killed that girl to put me in a frame. I mean to beat you to death and drink your blood from a boot. Drink your blood from a boot. You can, of course, place that, right, Josh? Tom Cruise in 2012's Jack Reacher?
2: Uh, no. I I have not entered the Reacher-verse. How many of these? Are there many of these? Is there just one? I don't know.
0: There are. I will be happy to tell you, Josh. Okay. There are are two Jack Reacher films starring Tom Cruise, and there is a TV series not starring Tom Cruise. And I'm going to say this. The 2012 Jack Reacher, the first movie, not the sequel, and I believe it was an Amazon Prime series. Those two for me are immediate contenders for the coined by me on the spot here, but hearkening back to something I said about that Netflix spy movie that came out last year, I think, The Gray Man. Those are immediate contenders for the Dad Enjoys While Folding Laundry Hall ah, of Fame. Okay. I, I can watch me some Jack Reacher <laughs> While folding laundry all day long. Who's, dr- who's Jack Reacher in the series? I was afraid that you would ask me that. His name, is, his name is Alan. It's okay. His name is Alan something. And now you've got me inclined to go off on a tangent about how they, they cast someone who's actually the size of Jack Reacher mm-hmm. in the books, apparently, which Tom Cruise is not. Okay. This, this very, very large man. I have to say, I actually do like his portrayal better than cruises okay.
2: I, I don't i don't need you to remember
0: all the you details didn't need that.
2: i just know that i just know that the, the shirts are perfectly folded your attention was going there so that's good
0: i want to make sure i give this guy his credit alan richson alan oh, okay. richson there you go decidedly much larger than tom cruise alan richson i will explain why that jack reacher clip was played here in a second it wasn't just so i could extol the virtues of alan richson but we're going to talk about next week's show first we've got a top five that we've done variations of in the past. Actor, director, pairs. You and guest Michael Phillips did your top five actor, director, pairs back in 2014. That was actor, director, pairs of all time, looking at the entire history of cinema. That's right. I think I had Jack Lemon Billy Wilder at the top of my list. So A very good one. You and I have also done top five actor, director reunions we'd like to see. We've done top five actor director collaborations. We'd like to see these are actors and directors who have not worked together, but should both of those lists for the record more than a decade ago and maybe worth revisiting, but no next week we're revisiting our top five actor director pairs with a new spin. And this is something that I kind of came up with when blurbing the new Nicole Hall movie, you hurt my feelings on letterboxd. I can't quite put her and Julia Louis-Dreyfus in this category yet. They've only made two films together. But they've made two really good films together, and I'd love to see a third. And if I saw a third, then I think they would be eligible for this top five actor-director pair. So, very quick on-air production meeting. We've been debating. We don't want to do of all time. We don't want to make it a carbon copy of the previous list. We want to look at current pairings, similar to julie louis dreyfus and nicole hall of center do we call it top five actor director pairs of the last 20 years do we go back the last 25 years or maybe we just say since 2000 what do you want to do josh yeah i mean since 2000 given that it's 2023 not as neat can't
2: say the last 23 years doesn't really work so since 2000 that's nice and neat for
0: me that's what i like as well qualifying for that list here we go we're coming back around tom cruise and Christopher McQuarrie. They've made four films together, including 2012's Jack Reacher. They also made the last two Mission Impossible movies, Fallout and Rogue Nation, and the new Mission Impossible installment, Dead Reckoning Part One. Our criteria for this top five, it is going to be a minimum of three collaborations since the year 2000. That means Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan, who is inexplicably not a part of the Barbie ensemble, they're not eligible. It could, though, include a collaboration like Christopher Nolan with his Oppenheimer star, Killian Murphy. They've made five films together since 2005. There are a lot of good options to choose from, Josh.
2: Well, and that adds a wrinkle, too, because normally you would go right to starring roles with a director, but that's Mm -hmm. not always been the case. It is with Oppenheimer, but before with Killian Murphy and Nolan. So, yeah, I'll have to give that some thought as well. Maybe... Maybe there's someone who a director returns to as a reliable, supporting performer, and Mm
0: -hmm. they're always so good that they should get a spot on this list. We'll have to see. We will have to see. If you've got a pick for our favorite actor-director pairings since 2000, maybe a pair you think we'll overlook, let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Getting back to Cruz and Macquarie and Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning opens on Wednesday, July 12th. We will review it the following week, give everybody a chance to see it before they sit down to enjoy their morning cup of tea and film spotting episode. It has also inspired the new film spotting poll, one of Sam Van Halgren's patented, deeply flawed film spotting polls. There are currently six Mission Impossible movies, four of them made between 96 and 2011, all made by different directors. And then we have the last two made by Macquarie. We're asking you to choose, keep the first four directed in order by De Palma, John Woo, J.J. Abrams, and Brad Bird, or do you keep Rogue Nation and Fallout? It goes without saying, Incinerator applies. The ones you don't keep, you'll never see again. Oh, man, I am behind
2: on my Mission Impossible prep, so... Let me pull up the old Larson on film
0: machine here. And this is where star ratings are helpful. Yeah. While um, you're doing that, I'll tell you how it's going in early voting on yeah, Twitter Yeah, please do. Please do. The Macquarie efforts are walking away with it. Listener Tim Capetta, he might get at the logic many are using. He said only because two is by far the worst of the series. That is conventional wisdom. And it is conventional wisdom I personally subscribe to. And six, Tim says, fallout. Is the best. So that's how he's making that decision. I'm inclined to go that way as well and pick the latter two movies versus the first four, because I don't think the De Palma one is quite as good as a lot of people do, though I think it's fine. And I really do dislike the Woo. But they get good, they get pretty good with three and four. It's tough, and I will be totally honest and confess, Josh, that I don't really know my rogue nations from my ghost protocols and my dead reckonings. I I, I really cannot keep them all straight. Who directed which one? What happens in any of them? So I don't really feel equipped to otherwise vote. That's kind of where I am am at too. So I hope at my I was hoping at my website that
2: like the star ratings would distinguish from them for me, and it's revealing I'm. You know, I'm pretty much generally a fan of these. I'm with conventional wisdom on the second one being, you know, the the least exciting. But yeah, so I guess I'll continue with that conventional wisdom and choose the more recent films if I had to, because those are just fresher in my
0: mind. They were a mm-hmm. blast, a ton of fun, and I'm excited about seeing the next one. I am as well. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. We wanted to take a moment to note the sad passing of Alan Arkin, great actor, 89 years old, a listener named Richard wrote in Josh just a day or so ago and said, my first Alan Arkin, freebie in the bean, not good. My favorite Alan Arkin and best co-star, Peter Falk, the in-laws and the classic quote, serpentine shell serpentine best Alan Arkin, double feature Glengarry Glenn Ross and 13 conversations about one thing heartbreaking. He could do anything that didn't require being tall. Good line, Richard. Give him some love. We indeed want to give this four-time Oscar nominee and a one-time Oscar winner in 07 for Little Miss Sunshine. Some love here on film spotting.
2: Yeah, I I think of, it was a supporting part, but one of my favorite films of all time, Edward Scissorhands, uh, the Tim Burton (laughs) flick where he's the somewhat befuddled, kind of lost in his own world, suburban dad, (laughs) Winona Ryder's dad who befriends Edward Scissorhands, I think about the great scene of him making him a mixed drink in the basement at his private bar, a lemonade, I think he calls it, and just has that sort of genial, when I think of Arkin, not always like this, but sort of a genial and pleasantly befuddled presence. Yeah.
1: I don't know what it is. They reach a certain age. They develop these gland things. Their bodies swell up. They go crazy.
0: Because I usually think of him as a genial and befuddled presence. I remember how weird it was seeing for the first time, maybe 10 years or so ago here because of a listener's choice film spotting conversation, wait until dark where Alan Arkin is playing a sinister character, the antagonist to is that the Audrey Hepburn? Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really I have seen that movie, one, but it, it was an adjustment to say the least, to to that performance by Alan Arkin. He also appeared in Gross Point Blank, So I Married an Axe Murderer, Mike Nichols' Catch-22. Earliest Oscar nominations came way back in 67 and 69 for lead roles in Norman Jewison's The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and for The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. He did get nominated again in 2013 for Argo. Almost 100 films, Josh, on his filmography going back to the mid-60s and never really stopped working, Two more films in the can. He does pop up in the Robert Downey Sr. documentary that I recommended earlier this year called Senior. So you can see him in that. And it sounds like a couple other more films to come. For me, I will always think of Arkin though. And maybe this, this shows my generation and it also shows my love for this film. I'll always think of him as Arono from Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah, yeah, that's gotta be at the top for sure.
1: What did I learn as a kid on Western? You don't sell a guy one car. You sell them five cars over 15 years. That's right. You're goddamn right it's right. Guys come in, all oh, the blah, blah, blah. I know what I'll do. I'll go out and rob everybody blind and go to Argentina because nobody ever thought of this
2: before. Mm. You know, so they killed a goose and a man's worked all his life. He's got a right. cower in his
0: boots. Boots, boots, yes. Over on our sister podcast this week, The Next Picture Show, Josh, once again, I feel like I say this way too often, but that just speaks to how good this podcast is. And how smart their pairings are. I love this pairing. It's so great. Celine Song's Past Lives
2: with, and this is a favorite film of yours, John Kearney's Once. So I'm sure that helps. But yeah, another pairing that isn't the first one that would come to mind, I think, if you're looking for a movie to pick Mm -hmm. to put next to Past Lives. But the more you think about it. Perfect. begins to make a lot of sense, which I'm sure they will dig into on the Next Picture Show. Your hosts there are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Koski. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. We wanted to share a quick reminder here about helping us reach new listeners by leaving us a rating or a positive review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We want to thank Apple podcast users, Smelly Tavallis. What a name. <laughs> see that? I uh, see what's going on there. So AJ good. Grossman and Leroy VP, who left some kind words for us this past week. The aforementioned Smelly wrote this. What if Ned Flanders and Smithers from The Simpsons
0: moved to Chicago and launched a film studies podcast? Here's okay, your answer. Keep- can we stop right there for a second? This is a positive review, right? It's a positive review. I think we'll let you. We'll let you finish in a second. Which one of us do you think he we don't thinks want, is we don't Ned Flanders, and which not. one is Smithers? I I really shouldn't have belabored it because now people are going to tweet at us. And oh no, I, I don't. I don't want to hear the answer.
2: No. You should have let that be. Smelly continues, seriously, Adam and Josh are like the cooler than expected relatives you love to hang out with at family gatherings. Okay. Their smart, sincere, and often funny takes on films, present and past, are a gift to my ears, brain, and heart. Okay. Wow. You Thank sold you, it. Smelly. You, you sold it there. You in landed the there. plane.
0: I was... <laughs> Smelly to There was a
2: little turbulence
0: along the way, but... Uh, yes. <laughs> you can share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts. You can rate us on Spotify. Another way to support film spotting we would love to have you join the esteemed club that is the film spotting family you get to listen to episodes early and ad free you get our producer sam's weekly newsletter and you get monthly bonus shows our june bonus just went out last week a really fun ask us anything episode where we talked about our home theater setups or the lack thereof we talked about how we react when we get called movie snobs and When we think you should start watching movies with your kids and how maybe best to go about that. We also weighed in on the best movies and TV shows going back to 1998, the last 25 years, in conjunction with a Rotten Tomatoes survey that went out. More bonus shows to come. You get a new one every month, plus access to the Film Spotting Archive, depending on your benefit tier. Please do join us there. FilmSpottingFamily.com.
1: You've taken your chances made your mistakes. And now a final triumph. Indy! Give them hell, Indiana Jones!
0: We'll find out how much of a final triumph it was here in a moment. Some of the trailer for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny setting up our poll results. A couple of weeks ago, we asked you essentially to determine once and for all Harrison Ford's defining screen persona. We only gave you two options. Because to give you any more, well, that would just be silly. Indy or Han, Josh?
2: Yeah, and I think I said at one point when we were discussing this, I really wanted to wait till I saw Dial of Destiny. And not that I was all that torn about this, but we had seen how Han went out. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to see at least, you know, in terms of the films and the series how they chose to bid goodbye to Indiana Jones, and if that affected my vote at all. Maybe we'll get into this. Yeah, I'd like to. In Can our we review. hold it? So That's where I, I w- want to start, actually.
0: Okay, well. <laughs> You're jumping ahead.
2: I'll just say, to for the point of this poll, yeah, just solidified for me how they handled it, a nice closure for this character, and
0: makes it an easy vote to vote for Indy. Well, That's where listeners went as well. 69%. 69% going with Indiana Jones over Han Solo. J. Alfred Prufrog, there's another great name, wrote in, (laughs) as cool as Han Solo was, this is not a fair fight. The Star Wars saga was a series of ensemble films. Han was a big part, but he was just one of them. Leia was every bit as cool as Han, and certainly Luke, even when the movie gave her less agency and less to do. And Carrie Fisher played her with as much brio and moxie as Ford showed roguish charm. Yeah, but Josh Larson never dressed up as Princess Leia when he was a kid. The Indiana Jones movies, as strong a supporting cast as they had in Karen Allen, John Rhys Davies, Denholm Elliott, Kiwae Kwan, Allison Duty, Sean Connery, and the rest were The Harrison Ford Show. The only true competitors for our attention were the meticulously constructed set pieces that threatened Jones's life and limb and the MacGuffin of the week that started the ball rolling, sometimes literally. As a child born in the 70s, both film series are permanently etched in my memory, but it is the character of Indiana Jones and Harrison Ford's performance as him that will forever stand out. We also heard from Jan McDaniel,
2: "I recall vividly my first theater experiences of both A New Hope and Raiders. Both with full theaters soon after original release dates. I was in my early 20s and came to both films knowing little about them. Han Solo was written more or less as a stock character throughout the first trilogy and Ford's acting style suggested a sort of going along with the joke feel. Very entertaining, but not actor studio stuff." As I watched Ford in Raiders, however, I was conscious at the time that I was seeing a latter-day Bogart, skillfully imbuing an uber-macho character with visceral emotional shifts that often didn't involve speaking. Example, the saloon shot when Indy believes that Marion has died. Indy shows the actor Ford became. I like that wrinkle. I mean, we had been discussing this mostly in terms of character, not so much performance. Obviously, they're related, but I like thinking about
0: it from this angle. Jeff Clark says, I have to go with the one who took the name of his childhood dog. He clearly has identity issues and needs our support. Good point, Jeff.
2: Patrick Barton said, I know a lot of folks don't love the latter trilogy, but I thought Ford did an amazing job in his swan song in The Force Awakens. That combined with everything that came with the original trilogy
0: tips the scales for me. Indy is great, but Han lives forever in my heart. Well, us solo disciples, we may have lost this poll, but I think Jared Sorensen gets to drop the mic here at the end. He writes simply... I know. Oh, I think your delivery Adam is what. <laughs> I really knew that was coming. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Well, speaking of deliveries and performances, let's get to Harrison Ford in The Dial of Destiny, which sets its Indiana Jones adventure in 1969, despite taking place 25 years after the Second World War, we still managed to feature a plethora of Nazis. Jones and his estranged goddaughter, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, locate a device that could change the course of history. They try to keep it out of the hands of Mads Mickelson's Dr. Jürgen Voller. So you beat me to the punch a little bit, but I'd love for you to expound on Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones as we see him in the dial of destiny. Now a much older man, certainly well past his prime, but are we still perhaps seeing Harrison Ford in his prime as an actor. Boy, his commitment to the part mm-hmm. was one of the most enjoyable things about
2: this. He's kind of regarded, I think, as a grumpy off-screen presence or persona. How accurate that is, I don't know. But it's certainly an element of the Indiana Jones persona and has been since Raiders, you know, he could be a, a bit of a grumpy guy. That, that was one of the amusing things about Crystal Skull is that was supposed to be the one in 2008 where he was the old guy, right? Mm-hmm. And it felt natural to me because he was kind of a bit of a grumpy old guy. Well, now we have him, supposedly, I think around 70, the character is here and grumpier than ever, yet Ford isn't wearing that with any sort of resentment. There is an early teaching scene here. Where he gets so excited about the subject matter and so passionate about the, the history that he's teaching. The students are not, I'll get to that in a minute, but he has that passion. And I think that is directly connected to the passion that Ford brings and the commitment to this part throughout the entire rest of the movie. He has it. That's crucial. You needed Ford's buy-in for this to work. And I felt like it was there now. The movie is interested, and Ford is in on this as well, in doing something a little different, where once we get to 69, there's a prologue set in World War II. That's where the de-aging effects are put into effect. We can talk about how bothered we were or weren't by that. But once we get to 69 and we have the 70-something Ford, I just loved how much time the movie spent in demythologizing Indiana Jones. Okay? And so... He wakes up, he's woken up in 69 by this Beatles music from a neighbor. He's in his dumpy apartment and that makes him grumpier than ever. He's not wearing a shirt, forcing us to admit the age. This isn't a movie that's going to, you know, try to trick us that Harrison Ford isn't really that old. No, he's that old. And then let's go back to that class. Another classic Indiana Jones moment we could include on our list, the, the students batting their eyes at him in Raiders, right? Because they
0: all have crushes on him. Here, they're all falling asleep. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a clear echo of that, right? Clear Those close-ups echo. of the faces. Absolutely. No more, no more fawning all over him. They they could not care less. The legend has gone away.
2: The mystique has gone away. And this whole New York section is intent on emphasizing that. The reason the neighbors were playing that music is because they were celebrating Moon Day. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is a parade, a celebration of the Apollo 11 astronauts. And it's very clear that the movie means to set up these astronauts as the next generation of adventurers. Indiana Jones and his ilk are old news. And how about when other students roll a TV set into his classroom so they can watch a television report of the parade celebrating those astronauts. But yeah, back to your question about the performance, Indy isn't dead yet. And that's something we can sense not only in
0: the narrative, but in the commitment and the acting that Ford brings to it. I voted for Han in the poll mostly out of nostalgia. He was the character I discovered and fell in love with and wanted to be first while acknowledging here on the show, that Indy was probably the richer set of performances, the richer character. Now, having seen Dial of Destiny twice—once with you at a screening, and then once with my kids here this past weekend—I might, I might have to go ahead and just revoke my choice and and make it <laughs> Indiana Jones. I'm not, I'm not going to suggest we undervalue Ford as an actor or what he brings to this character, but I do think we might take him for granted a little bit because that performance in Dial of Destiny. I think it's the film's greatest asset. Mm. And that, that could be for better or worse because maybe you go to Indiana Jones movies for lots of other things like the things we talked about in our top five, but it is that commitment. And I don't want to get in too much to the extra textual stuff. I don't pay a ton of attention to it, but I've of course come across various comments of his over the past few weeks on the promotional tour about how much of a privilege it has been to play the character, how much he loves the role and loves these films and loves the audience's relationship to this character and to these films. And it's, it's all there on the screen. It's all right there on the screen. Indy, as you described, he's, he's now a relic. He's, he's like one of the relics that he used to chase down. But Ford, in terms of his acting, he isn't getting by on the smirks that he can still pull off, he's not getting by on just being grumpy and cantankerous. There are lots of nuances to this performance, and there isn't a moment of discovery or pain, and there's a fair amount of pain or wonder that that he doesn't deliver completely honestly in this movie. I almost want to say I was surprised by it, and yet that. That is doing a disservice to how good Harrison Ford has been, not only in this series, but throughout his entire career.
2: Well, and with Mangold, James Mangold taking over as director, you know, Ford somewhat becomes the auteur here. He's carried this and lived with this material the longest of anyone involved, at least at this level, in the production. And so it's going to have to be in his performance and mm-hmm. his commitment where we get things like tone and and feeling and continuity for what has come before in the franchise. And Mangold is a very good steward of that, I think, but he can't he can't spiritually embody it in a way that Ford can. And so it it is I would say, yeah, it's probably the most enjoyable element of the movie, but it's also the most crucial element. It absolutely had to work for this to work. At all, and I'll just say overall, I had such a good time with this. I think I it too. works incredibly well. I'm a bit baffled at the tepid critical response. You know, I, I know this is an art house cinema, but still, the the first film is regarded as, you know, a, a classic of action adventure filmmaking, and this is not in its league. I'm not saying that at all. But it is a very strong contribution, even in the action filmmaking. As I said in our top five, this is in Spielberg at work here. But that whole opening sequence set back in World War II is pretty thrilling, cleanly cut, captured stuff. Again, in the tone, in the spirit of Indiana Jones, where chaos is thrown into the mix. Dumb luck comes into play. Bluffing comes into play. He has to pose as a Nazi soldier a number Mm -hmm. of times, sometimes when he doesn't plan on it. So it's spur of the moment. I think it's all managed quite well, maybe a little bit too much CGI for my taste, but that's, that's kind of what you're going to get in almost any production at this level these days. So, so yeah, just switching a little bit to the filmmaking here in Mangold. Um,
0: I was, I was happy with how he handled the task. I was too. Now you mentioned CGI and let's spend a minute on it and maybe nothing more than that. The de-aging. Yeah, this movie opening in the past, the Nazis raiding a church and stealing all of these artifacts, extended opening sequence like you would expect from an Indiana Jones film. We've got a dilemma. You absolutely cannot cast someone else to play a younger Indiana Jones. No, there is no way to do that. So if you're going to go into the past in an Indiana Jones film, that means utilizing this de-aging technology. Here's the good part. It looks or looked to me shockingly good. And maybe that's more Harrison Ford magic, Josh. He's so damn naturally good looking that even an unnatural version of him somehow seems perfect. But I was aware of the technology being employed, even though, and I I mean that not just because obviously I'm looking at a young Harrison Ford, but also in terms of a little bit, just a little bit of an uncanny valley effect. Yeah, it's there. It was minor, certainly minor compared to something else like the Irishman, which is the only other one that comes to mind when I think about this technique. It's, it's a lot better here. But that said, that doesn't mean you don't still have the same problem that we had with the de-aging in the Irishman, which is no matter how effectively you make Ford look younger, he's still moving and talking Yes, like someone voice, who's almost 80 years old. The voice especially. There is a completely different tone to his voice, especially when you think about how familiar it is to all of us mm-hmm. who have grown up on these films. Completely different tone to it. And his body, you can't help it, his body moves in a completely stilted manner that isn't the Harrison Ford or the Indiana Jones we recall from the past either. So you are you are immediately taken out of it as much as the technology is on its face pun intended on its face working pretty well i think then that leads into what you're saying about the action i'm with you no there's not an action sequence here that's on par with any of the action sequences we talked about in the previous films and especially that sequence at the beginning while i did like it it doesn't have that same rhythm it doesn't have that same pace and energy that some of the ones we talked about does. And I think part of it too, is that it, it's probably shot at night and shot in kind of that murky Mm -hmm. sky to mask that digital effect, right? Being employed. So I understand why they're using it overall work pretty well, not the same experience, not, not up to the level of the action experiences that we have been able to witness in the past. Totally fair. So quickly back to the de-aging,
2: similar experience to you. I think The Irishman is a good point of comparison. Wasn't perfect. It's not the first thing I think about The Irishman now, a couple years later, when I think about that movie. So not catastrophic at all. But to your question, to the dilemma you presented, here's an answer. Well, don't write a young Indiana Jones into the screenplay. This is a choice they have. Here's my counter to that. To the overall project of this movie, which is to consider... The legacy and the place and the demythologizing mm-hmm. that it wants to do, you absolutely can't only rely on our memories of a younger Indiana Jones. You need to be, you need to have him in that theater. And so for me, if it's a bit of a devil's bargain, it is, it was worth it to get the imperfect de-aging because overall it did capture the spirit of the character and mm-hmm. the spirit of the action filmmaking and all of these qualities that. The New York section saps away, and then once the next adventure begins with Helena, the Phoebe Waller-Bridge character, we see it start to seep back in. He's not going to become that young guy again, but we start to make the connection, and this is still Indiana Jones in a way that matters, that is unique, that is... The reason it's lasted these decades is because we don't get this sort of character very often, if ever. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, it's a particularly potent time for this movie to come out, Adam, because the last time we saw Indiana Jones was 2008. I think 2008 with Iron Man is pretty much regarded the dawn of our superhero era. Superheroes have now swallowed up blockbuster filmmaking. And... We both liked many of those films. Positive more often than not, I think. But it has become an exhausted genre, perhaps, right now. And it's nothing like what we get in these adventure films. These adventure films are more personal. They're more improvisational. They're loosely rooted in in actual geography and history. They're just very different in such a way. And so I just found it to be quite fitting to have this goodbye To this character, who has become a relic. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's the way the movies go. Trends change. Westerns used to rule. Musicals used to rule. Superheroes now rule. You know, it'll change in the next future. But I love that right now, you know, 15 years after the dawn of this superhero age and 15 years since the last Indiana Jones movie, we're getting something that, to me is allowing us to say goodbye to one of the more unique adventure characters in cinema. There's just something Mm -hmm. poetic about that, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: which makes it especially important that it was done well, to my mind. Without the movie getting consumed by any kind of meta meandering, I'm with you. I think it completely justifies itself. Dial poses the same question for its hero that it does for its audience. Does the world still need Indiana Jones? Fortunately for both, the answer... Is Yes, the answer is yes, in the sense that I felt watching it that my time, my money, my energy, it was all worth it to give over that two hours plus to this film in the theater. But then the the journey of the character, it it's not. Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, right? Where it's a movie that's getting into canon and it's doing that very brilliantly. I touched on that. It's one of the aspects I loved about that film. But it's very aware of itself and very aware of the idea of narratives. And I don't think this movie goes too far down that rabbit hole. And yet it very much understands who this character and who this performer is now. And it's not trying to recapture any of the old magic as much as it does pay tribute in some ways with certain references and homages to the previous films. It is its own unique film with its own unique sensibility. And you have a character who is at a point, I hadn't thought of this until you said it, but not only is he in contrast to the Apollo 11 astronauts as kind of the, (laughs) as kind of the Buzz Lightyear to his Sheriff Woody, Mm -hmm. the more traditional hero, right? But you notice how he is oblivious to it. And I think that that is probably a reflection just of how out of touch he is, how out of time he is, how much he has given up on trying to be a part of this world and this life. He is he is thrown in the towel. There's also potentially a sense of him being like this goes back to the awe and the supernatural and the magic element. Think about everything that Indiana Jones has seen (laughs) to him. He might be the only person where the astronauts can't touch him, right, in terms of whatever they're coming across that everyday Americans never get to encounter. But there there was that that sense of melancholy and, like I said, this journey that this character has to go on where he has to reckon with who he is now, who he is now in the world and whether or not he wants to be a part of the world. Yes, and I, yes. I I don't think the the movie does that in – too heavy-handed away. I think most of it comes through in in the performance. I think it's a very interesting question th- that they put at the heart of this movie and
2: he's not interested in the Apollo 11 astronauts because he wants to live in the past. That's where mm-hmm. his studies are, but that's also where his greatest exploits have been. And I would say to answer your question, does this movie need Indiana Jones? Do we need Indiana Jones as moviegoers? I would say yes because it was an enjoyable experience, but also no he It's ok, yes, for him to be done. I and agree. maybe it it just speaks to the exhaustion I'm feeling for the other dominant um genre we're in right now. But I like watching a movie where a character like this says, "I'm going to leave the stage. i want to I want to acknowledge that my time has come and gone. I'm not going to, you know, ring this out for another adventure and then find a way to allow the character to do that, you know, nobly with humor, a little bit creaky as well. This isn't a perfect movie, but still just kind of acknowledge that, yes, my time has passed and that is okay. And here's a chance for a goodbye. That's, that's what this, this movie sort of felt like to me, especially in the backdrop of the new blockbusters we're living with. Okay. So Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I know you're not going to go as strong as me on this here, how much, how much I loved her. Pretty sure you did appreciate the performance, but I really think this is contributing something to the level of what Sean Connery did for last crusade. And I'm not familiar with her. I have not watched fleabag. So this was really my first, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of TV out there, Adam. This, this (laughs) is my first exposure to her. And from that opening moment, her opening moment where she's in his classroom and kind of vibing with the passion he's showing about the archaeology and also one-upping his disinterested students. There is just a lively, unique presence here. You recognize right away that what's interesting to me about her performance is that it is very much in line with the tradition of the series, right? She's not coming in and trying to totally up end things. She's almost like an indie Marion Ravenwood combo mm-hmm. in her persona. And so you've got the honoring of that, but then she brings her own distinct flavor. She you know, she was a co-screenwriter for No Time to Die. The Bond film. I think she has a very like bond flavor here in some of her scenes, particularly that that auction sequence I mentioned on our list. and there's also something. I don't know. I'm still, again, she's new to me. I'm trying to wrap my mind around her performance. There's something very interesting in terms of her gender presentation here, because it's not just a tomboy thing, but it definitely has some element of that. It's also very sexual, but kind of in a bond way going back to bond. Um, and so, yeah, she's just completely unique. And as I said, I like that. She's a little shady too. It has that profit and glory element of the young indie we mm-hmm. meet in the temple of doom. So, For me, she was crucial to this not just being a nostalgia fest, but you needed a new character to bring her own spark that also is related emotionally to Indiana Jones and what's happened and what's come before in
0: this series. I agree that that's key. And as someone who loved both seasons of Fleabag, I had high expectations for Waller Bridge here. And she she didn't disappoint. I'm not in... The business of or in the habit of trying to make studios any money. That's not what we're trying to do here. But I definitely had the sense that while it feels more appropriate than ever to bid adieu to Harrison Ford, to bid adieu to Indiana Jones, if this series was going to continue in some way, that character picking up the, the mantle or picking up the, the fedora and the whip, if you will, that would, that would make total sense to me. And I think that she justifies it with the character and the performance. And there's, there's a great line she has during one of the chase sequences where Godfather Indy, who's being a little more, I don't know, prudish than her, says something to her, yells at her, something like, what would your dad think of you? And I'm not going to get the line exactly right, but her response is something like, what? resourceful, smart, beautiful, self-sufficient. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and she, she nails that. And uh-huh. I don't just mean the line delivery, but we, we have to believe that that character does embody all of that. And when she shoots that back at, at Indy, he doesn't have time to respond in that moment, but he also can't respond. There's nothing he can say to that. She absolutely throws that back in his face. So I agree. It's a really, really fun character. Great, chemistry i think between her and ford in this film yeah we like crystal skull we like dial of destiny bring it tell us we're wrong we don't like temple of doom if that's worth anything yeah we don't sorry filmspotting.net is the email and josh that's our show If you would like to continue
2: the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, you can find Adam at Filmspotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking ahead to the release of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. You have to choose the first four Mission Impossibles. They come from four different directors, or would you rather have the most recent two, which have both been directed by Christopher McQuarrie. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net
0: slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at FilmSpottingFamily.com for as little as $5 a month. You get to listen to the show early and ad free, plus the weekly newsletter and our monthly bonus shows. You may have access to the archive as well, over something like 11, 1200 episodes, all total, between past bonus episodes and other content we've delivered over the years. You can find that infamous. Sacred cow discussion of Raiders of the Lost Ark with Michael Phillips, where he plays Belloc to our indie.
2: I thought we were going to get through this show without mentioning it. Poor Michael. I
0: I don't think we're allowed to. I think we're contractually (laughs) obligated to mention Michael Phillips and that he is ho hum on Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm going to do this really quickly just to give people a sense of how much we love Raiders of the Lost Ark and apparently how much we referenced it before we put it into the film spotting pantheon deservedly. Here's some top fives it's made over the years. Summer movies, 80s movies, coolest characters, action movie romances, relic movies, car chases, movie character nicknames, we named the dog Indiana, films of 81, Spielberg scenes, movie costumes we'd wear, movie going experiences, and we did recently have a Spielberg draft in our bonus content. Wow. I mean, what what does the Pantheon mean? I don't think we've talked about any other film in the show's history. <laughs> Last Crusade has made a fair number as well. You can find all of those top fives and other reviews of indie movies, Spielberg movies, filmspottingfamily.com. In wide release, Insidious, colon, Red Door. This is the fourth sequel to 2010's Insidious. This one is directed by series star Patrick Wilson. Joyride is also out. This is a road trip comedy with Stephanie Shu, Ashley Park, and others. Streaming, you can see a movie that I had a burning question about during our summer movie preview. My number two was what would my beloved Hump Day look like in space and without the sex? Biosphere is now playing. That stars Sterling K. Brown and Mark Duplass. Are they using that on the poster? Have you noticed? We'll see we'll see maybe next week here on the show we are doing our top five actor director pairings since the year 2000 again we would love to get your recommendations for that list feedback at filmspotting.net
2: film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van halgren without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go our production assistants are betty Lavendero and veronica phillips And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
1: And
0: I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose
1: anymore. Goodbye.